And it's about this basketball coach named Bob Hurley. And he's a coach for a Catholic high school in Jersey City, which is a pretty rough place. He started out as a probation officer and realized that he was already missing a chance to help with a solution because a lot of his guys that were on probation would kind of keep relapsing and going back to jail. And and he saw that if he didn't catch people when they were younger, he wasn't really going to be able to help fix some of the problems in his community. So he becomes a basketball coach at this Catholic high school called St. Anthony's. And throughout the documentary, you're kind of uncomfortable with Bob because he's extremely rough around the edges. He's extremely unbending. When, when he sets out a rule for his team, that's it. There's no questioning it. And if the, if the players go afoul of his rules, they're going to hear about it big time. The reason, though, that, that, he, that he is so unbending and almost gruff is because he looks around at his community. And it's a community that has a high poverty rate, a high crime rate, a high father abandonment rate. It's very low income, low education, and it's a generational poverty. It's very, very difficult for people to get out. And if, if he can't figure out a way to help people get out of this cycle, out of this community, they're going to be stuck there. Statistically, most of the young men that come through the schools in Jersey City are going to end up in a life of crime, probably incarcerated at some point in their lives. But here's what's interesting about Bob Hurley's approach to basketball. After 36 years of coaching in Jersey City, hundreds and hundreds of ballplayers that have come through his program, only two of them have not gone on to college. Only two. That's staggering. And the reason is because he is unbending. He will not back down from the rules that he sets up for his team. He doesn't have time for showboats. And in the documentary, uh, he's got a senior class that has not yet won a championship. Every senior class has won a championship at least once in their high school career with Bob. He never goes more than four years without a championship. And this team might not get that shot. And he keeps reminding them of that over and over again. And he has a couple of team leaders, some really talented guys, that are trying to kind of figure out, okay, how can we, how can we make this happen? How can we win the championship? And one of them is named Mike. And Mike's having a really hard time. He's not as mature as Coach really wants him to be. And so he ends up going out and playing for himself. And so he, he'll dunk the ball and hang on to the rim and get a technical foul. And so he ends up doing a series of things that puts the team's chances at winning a, a championship in danger. And so even though he's a really talented guy, Coach Hurley pulls him out of the game. And at the next practice, Hurley brings in a former player of his to tell them a story from years gone by. And the player begins to explain to these kids just how unbending Coach Hurley really is. And he tells them this story from when he was playing. They were in the playoffs, and St. Anthony's was going up against one of their big rivals, Lower Marion. But this time, it wasn't just a regular rival, because Lower Marion had a scrappy senior named Kobe Bryant. This kid was unreal, right? He's still unbelievable. He's one of the best basketball players ever to get on the court, right? So just prior to the game, as this former basketball player is telling the story to the current team, he says, me and a couple guys who were the leaders of the team screwed up. And we started acting like individuals, not team members. And guess what happened? Coach pulled his two most valuable, talented players from the biggest game of their high school career and benched them. He played his second string against Kobe Bryant. 
And guess what? They won. St. Anthony still won. Kobe Bryant lost that game. More importantly, Coach Hurley proved to his players that when they put on a St. Friars jersey, they were no longer individuals. They were part of a team. Their identity shifted from being alone to being part of that community, part of that team. St. Peter is writing to a group of dispersed Christians. And in his two letters, and really throughout the corpus of the New Testament, we see some pretty redundant themes, pretty familiar ideas, and that is persecution from without, division from within. So in, in, the, in the Roman world at this point, there were a lot of disparate cultures at play, and the Romans typically kind of let cultures have their own cultural identity. However, there was one thing that united all of them together, and that was primary loyalty was given to the empire, always. Didn't matter which culture you were originally a part of, now you were part of the Roman world. And your primary loyalty was given to the empire. As, as the gospel message that, that the early disciples bring to this world comes through and comes to full flowering in these communities, it cuts directly across this loyalty. Because the gospel demands instead that primary loyalty be given to Jesus. The gospel states that Jesus is the real Caesar of the world. He's the real Lord of the world. And primary loyalty is given to his kingdom, not the Roman Empire. And so the external pressure to deconvert from Christianity was staggering. There was cultural, social, and economic persecution. You combine that with the occasional flare-up of physical torture, and it makes for a very somber, perfect storm against Christian communities. In addition to external persecution, there's a lot of internal strife, a lot of internal divisions going on within the church, because the church had largely begun as a, as a Jewish phenomenon. But as the gospel message got proclaimed to all people, as Jesus commanded his disciples to do, suddenly there was this head-on collision. It became multicultural, cross-cultural, and super-religious. All of these different disparate cultures were now being mashed together. All the identity markers that people had grown up with were being stripped away, and they're being given a new corporate identity as they entered the community of Jesus. Now, Paul, who's another apostle, when he talks about this, this kind of cultural battle within the church, he usually talks about it in pretty Jewish terms. So a lot of times if you read his writing, you'll hear him talking about circumcision and uncircumcision. And he's calling on the church to not think of the world in those terms anymore. And that's a very Jewish way of identifying who's part of God's people and who's not. And Paul is saying now the badge, the identity marker of this new cross-cultural community is faith. That's it. Faith in Jesus. And here, Peter is struggling to express to these young churches that are undergoing a great amount of persecution what it means for them to be a community. He's trying to help them understand what their corporate identity is. You've probably noticed from the Old Testament reading this morning that Peter almost directly quotes from Moses. In Exodus 19, as Moses describes the identity of Israel, Peter calls all of those terms to mind as he describes the identity of the church. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. 
Do you see that none of Peter's terms are singular? He doesn't call us holy person. He doesn't say that you're a holy priest or a royal priest. He doesn't say that you're an individual. Rather, he says, you, if you have apprehended Christ, if Christ has taken hold of your life through the gospel, you have entered into the people of God. You have been enrolled in the priesthood of God. And you are a citizen of a new nation. It's not that you cease to exist as an individual. It's just that your entire individual identity is now wrapped up and informed by your communal, corporate identity. Not only is Peter cutting directly against his own culture at the time, but he's really cutting against our culture. Because in in Western religious uh, life now, there's a lot of confusion, even just in our terminology, the term church. We have a really hard time nailing down what do we mean when we say church. Often we say, I'm going to go to church, when what we mean is, I'm going to go to a worship gathering on a Sunday morning that usually lasts for a couple hours, right? Or, or we say, well, I just drove by the church. But what we really mean is we drove by a building that if it was built, you know, 100 years ago, it's gorgeous and has a steeple. If it was built 50 years ago or less, it probably has one of those reader boards with the really cheesy things written on it, right? And it's interesting that the way that we use terms and the confusion that we have with our terms actually informs us in, in, and it changes how we think about community and what Christianity is about and what the church should be about. After I graduated from college, I was uh, in this despondency of, so I was in school for this many years to come and get this minimum paying job. I was a barista. And I was working for people that I had known in high school that didn't go to college, didn't have any student debt, and they were my manager, right? They were already above the ladder for me. And so I, um, I did what any thinking person would do. I quit my job as a barista and I became a claims adjuster at a national uh, auto insurance company. Are there any claims adjusters here this morning? Okay. Not the best fit for me, right? Not, not really a great, a great career move. Um, but I, I flowered. Boy, I bloomed. Uh, my three-week career there was pretty fantastic. I made a lot of changes to the industry. Um, so really, I really did only work there for about three weeks. Uh, it, was, it was terrible. But most of my time there was spent in training, right? And, and one of the things that we learned was that in different states, there are different laws regarding auto insurance. And in some states, auto insurance follows the vehicle. So if your car is insured, your car is insured no matter who's driving it. But in other states, insurance follows the driver. So you're insured no matter what car you're driving. The church is like insurance following the driver. And no offense to our wonderful friends here at the Old Church Society, it's not a building. We talk about it like it's a building or a service time, but that's not it. The church is the community of God's people. It's a royal priesthood. It's a holy nation. If you've been united with Christ through faith and baptism, then you are united to his church. It's as simple as that. The idea, though, that that church is a building or or a a thing that we do on a Sunday morning has given fuel to a a new interesting phenomenon, especially in America. Um, It's the idea of being a Jesus follower. Have you heard people use that language? Well, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Jesus follower. 
And, and there's a growing number of people now that want to be a Jesus follower, but don't want to have anything to do with the church. And to be honest, I resonate with a lot of their reasoning, right? I mean, the, the church is, has done some pretty horrible things. The church never really seems to, to get her act together, right? There's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of anger. And, and the church sometimes is slow to react to social injustices and various things like that. And so there's a growing number of people who, who are saying, I'm, I'm on board with Jesus, but I'm not okay with his people. I don't want to be a part of the church. Though I can sympathize with their sentiments, according to the New Testament, according to the teaching of the apostles and the early church, there is no such thing as a Jesus follower who's not a part of the church. There simply is no category for that idea. The gospel message, the message of hope for the entire universe, has been entrusted to the church and is declared by the church. That's why the early church fathers could say, outside of the church, there is no salvation. This is it. It's a lot like marriage. Remember when you were thinking about getting married and someone came to you and said, remember, you don't just marry a person. You marry their entire family. So if they've got weird uncles, get ready. That's your Christmas. That's what it's like with Jesus. If you want to come along with Jesus, you don't just get him. You get his family, the church, for better or for worse. This is why we gather together on Sunday mornings. This is why we encourage being a part of community groups, because there is a universal reality that when you have placed your faith in Christ and accepted the gospel and its claim on your life, you have entered into a new community. And so on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, we have opportunities to express that reality in a local fashion. We gather together and we do life together. This is what it means to be a Christian. Your identity has shifted from singularity to a corporate identity. Your identity goes from being based on individuality being based on community. That's the identity. I love Wes Anderson films. I realize it sounds like I just watch movies. Does, does that what it sounds like? At least some of them are documentaries. They're informative, right? So Wes Anderson, uh, he's, he's the guy who does you know, Rushmore and Darjeeling Limited and the Royal Tenenbaums. He has a, a really uh, non-traditional writing style and sense of humor. He writes these characters that are wanting some big reversal or they're, or they're moving towards some big goal. And most movies are going to give you the happy ending. Everything's going to work out. The boy gets the girl, etc., etc. But in Wes Anderson movies, that almost never happens. They never really get what they're looking for. And yet the characters somehow grow through their continued failure. Maybe that's why I like it. There's a... Uh, there's one film in particular. It's his first film. It's called Bottle Rocket. And I think it might be my favorite. Uh, and Bottle Rocket starts off with this character named Dignan. And Dignan is a really lovable guy, but he, he doesn't really live in reality. He's kind, of, he's kind of not really getting it, right? He's a little off. And at the beginning of the movie, Dignan is going uh, to rescue his friend Anthony from a mental hospital. Uh, but it's, it's a voluntary mental hospital, so Anthony doesn't need to escape. He doesn't need rescue. He could pack up his bag and walk out the front door anytime. But, but Dignan, he, he needs the rush, right? So he's going to rescue him. 
And Anthony had checked himself into this hospital because of what he referred to as exhaustion. Uh, so Anthony busts him out, and they go and they meet their friend Bob. And the rest of the plot is really about Anthony or about Dignan's 75-year plan for his three-man band to, to perform bigger and bigger heists until they meet up with his crime mentor, uh, Mr. Henry. But though that's the plot line, the story is really about Anthony. And Anthony is trying to change his life. He doesn't want to be the person that he was at the beginning. He wants to be someone else. And at one point in the movie, one of the characters is asking Anthony, what happened? Why, why did you check yourself into a, a mental hospital for exhaustion? What's that about? And Anthony responds, Well, one morning over at Elizabeth's beach house, she asked me if I'd rather go water skiing or lay out. And I realized that not only did I not want to answer that question, but I never wanted to answer another water sports question or see any of these people again for the rest of my life. You see, Anthony realized that he was living a certain expression of an upper-middle-class good life. He realized that he and his friends had a very certain identity, and their identity was wrapped up and informed by what they did, their function. He no longer wanted to be that person, and he no longer wanted to do those things. Similarly, the terms that Peter uses in our passage this morning to describe this community the identity, these identity terms are wrapped up in function. Function informs identity, and identity informs function. What we do informs who we are, and who we are informs what we do. So I'd quickly like to look at a couple of the terms that Peter uses and try to understand not only the identity piece, but how that causes us to function as a community. First off, Peter tells us that as Christians, if you're a Christian, you are chosen by God. You're a chosen people. That means that Christians aren't the brightest, they're not the best, not the ones born with a light bulb above their head. No one is made a Christian based on moral performance, ethnic heritage, economic status, or mental abilities. It is simply the grace of God. That's what Peter is saying. You have been chosen. You didn't figure this out on your own. And the way that that works out in function is it causes us to live out of humility and dependence on Christ, not out of pride and a sense of accomplishment. Next, Peter tells us that Christians are a royal priesthood. And it's not, he's not just quoting Moses, though he is quoting Moses. He's quoting a very ancient Jewish tradition, but he's also playing on imagery and ceremony that was around the Jewish people for centuries. And so the people that he's writing this to have a, a very broad understanding of what this means. And we're going we're gonna to unpack some more of this uh, towards the end, but um, the basic idea of being a priest, at the core of all the ceremony, all the rituals that the priest would do in the Old Testament, the basic function of a priest is to represent God to people and people to God. That's the function. And what Peter is telling us is that this is the function of the entire church, not just some professional overclass up here, this is everyone's job. All Christians are called to live their lives Christianly, interceding for others before God and reflecting God to his creation. In the power of the Holy Spirit, with the gospel at the center of their lives, each member of the church is called to represent God to people and people to God. Peter then refers to Christians 
and this new community as a holy nation. Now, typically when we hear the word holy, a lot of us immediately think of moral purity. And that is an aspect of, of the word group that, that we translate holy throughout Scripture. However, it's largely used in the sense of being set apart. And so you can think of it as, as flying on an airplane, right? There are all of us regular folks, and then there are the first-class folks, and they are set apart. However, though we would usually try to get that thinking into our brain, that's not even really correct, because it's not just that you're set apart as something special or something better, where you get more comfort and more enjoyment. You're set apart for service. Think of it as a flight attendant, not a first-class ticket holder. Set apart for use. And so as you look at the Old Testament, especially in the ceremonial laws, you'll see that God tells Moses that there are certain objects that are going to be made holy. It's not that a spoon or a candle holder actually has some sort of moral purity. It's that they are set apart for a specific use in the worship of God. In this sense, the people of God are called to be set apart, to be used for his mission in the world. That's what it means to be holy. But he says we're a holy nation. This means that at some level, our old national identity markers are surpassed by our new national identity, the nation of God's people throughout the world. I would ask you to consider then, if, if you're an American or you've lived here for a while and you consider this your nation, consider that what happens in this nation is not necessarily the primary concern of the Christian not necessarily the primary concern. Yes, we do want a just and generous society. Yes, we want to continue enjoying peace and the freedoms that we have. Yes, the church, the community of Christ, should be speaking into the culture. We want that. Yet, if you find yourself to be a Christian and simultaneously coming regularly unglued, by whatever preposterous thing your political party tells you to be upset about, then you have ceased to think of yourself as a Christian first, and you're thinking of yourself primarily as an American. Peter is telling us that if we are Christian, then our national identity has shifted. Rather than allowing rabid nationalism from the left or from the right to dictate our function in society, we are to be a people primarily set apart to be used by God for his mission in the entire world. Think about what that means. We are a holy nation, united together with God's people throughout the universe. This means that if you are a Christian, you actually have more solidarity with another Christian in Egypt or in Libya or Afghanistan. You actually have more communion with another Christian in China or Brazil or Mexico because your corporate identity lies outside of your national or ethnic heritage. If you're a part of this holy nation, if, if that's a way that we can describe the church, which Peter does, then that denotes that there must be a leader. All nations have leaders. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is the leader of this nation, this new community. He is the king. He is the Lord. As such, he is the one who sets national policy. We adopt his view. His diplomacy is our diplomacy, and his mission is our mission. It's not that 
It's not that being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom makes you pull back from any sort of civic duty in the here and now. Rather, it should make you a better citizen, a more active and engaged citizen. It's just that your reasons for doing it, your way that, the way that you go about doing it, the rhetoric that you use, all of it shifts because you're no longer taking cues from the current political discussion. You're taking cues from your king, your president, whatever you want to call him, the leader of this nation. You're taking his mission on as your own. And you're working it out in your own community, in your own nation. Ask yourself, is the policy of your current political representatives, whether you like it or whether you hate it, is that of more concern to you than the mission of Jesus? Consider your identity. If you're in Christ, you are no longer just an American or just a Canadian. You're no longer just a a Brazilian or a Bolivian or an Egyptian You're no longer just Chinese or Korean. You are part of the holy nation of God's people. And you are to be set apart for his use to bring about his mission in the world. This is the function of the community. Why are we here? And that that question is intentionally vague. Why are there people on this planet... Is, is one way of understanding that question. And, and why are we here in this building on a Sunday morning? And the answer to both of those questions, biblically, is actually the same answer. What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? And why are we called that? And what are we doing on this earth in the first place? The biblical answer is that in the beginning, God created all things. He created a world full of beauty and life that was ordered correctly. At the top of this created order, God made man and woman. He made humanity, and he stamped humanity with his image. The image of God, the imago Dei, we are image bearers. And that image, to be called the image of God, is an identity that is wrapped up in function. See, the human race, from the very beginning, was called to represent God to the created world. Man and woman were called to rule over the earth in humbleness and obedience to their creator. Humanity was on the one hand called to care for the earth and explore the beauty and greatness of the creator that made it. And on the other hand, humanity was called to bring voice and language to the praises of all of creation and give vocal words to that praise and bring it before God. Humans were to reflect God to the world, and the world to God. But of course, something goes horribly wrong. Humans fail to keep their charge, and rather than reflect God to their creation, they try to set themselves up as Lord over all things. They attempt to coup. And rather than being stewards who have charge over something given to them by God, they try to set themselves up as their own authority. And by they, I really mean we. All of us do that. The good news is is that in this story, God is unwilling to let his creation go. So first he calls a family, the descendants of Abraham. That family grows and becomes a nation, and he calls the nation of Israel, and he says to them, you are my chosen people. You are a holy nation, and you will be a royal priesthood for the rest of the world. 
Your vocation, Israel, is to reflect God into the world and reflect the world back to God. Much of the story of the Old Testament is Israel's failure to keep this charge. They fail time after time until eventually they're kicked out of the land that God gave them. They're gone into exile, and even when they return, they realize that things really aren't the same. And then it happens. Then the descendant of Abraham comes on the scene. The true human. Jesus Christ, the God-man. And Jesus models for us what it looks like to live as truly and fully human in a broken world. But he does more than that. Because he is God and man, his death, his resurrection, all of that is given over to us, and we now have his life. We are reconciled to God because of what he has done. And now, in the midst of this new creation that is starting to emerge, there is a new community, a new nation, called by Christ, made up of new people who have been given new life by the Holy Spirit. And Peter is telling us that the purpose of this new community is to be a royal priesthood that does what? Declares the glories and praises and excellencies of a God who is full of grace. A God who did everything for us. We are to be a community of people who constantly declares the mercy of God. This is the same purpose that humanity has had since the beginning of time. It's always been the same. The calling of Christians is a calling to repeat the gospel story over and over and over and over. Everything that we do in our lives is to picture and mirror and reflect that gospel story. So whether you work as a barista or a doctor or an accountant, if you're a teacher or a musician or a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a child, your main vocation, if you have been united with Christ, your calling is to declare the excellencies of God by making the best latte you can, by healing people with diseases, by being a great son, a great father, a great wife, and you're doing it as a way to declare God's message. Your identity is not as a mom or a husband or a barista. Your identity is as a royal priest of God, part of the royal priesthood. And so everything that you do with all of your talents, all of your gifts, all of your time, every breath you take is drawn in a way that you would declare the excellencies of God, everything that you do. And it's more than just you. You're not just doing it alone. You're part of a community. The church is actually a microcosm. It is a tiny replica of what the future holds for the entire universe. As a community in Christ, we are reflecting the beauty and grace and truth of God into our world, and we are reflecting the world back to God, and it's reflection which right now is so dim, it's so hard, it's so distorted and quiet, and yet one day it will shine clearly. It will be declared loudly. The entire earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And as a community right now, as we wait for that final renewal of all things, we are called to uphold the entire world before our God in prayer. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The Christian understanding of prayer is the inarticulate groaning in which the pain of the world is felt most keenly at the point where it is also being brought by the Spirit into the very presence of God 
the Creator. This is central in the present time to the human vocation. The gospel is given to a community. And the identity and function and purpose of that community are so wrapped up in the gospel story that our lives are spent collectively, as a group, as a community, grabbing hold of Jesus with one hand and the world with the other. And with every breath we take, we pray for reconciliation. We mirror that gospel story over and over and over. And yes, that takes sacrifice. We cannot do it on our own. We do it in the power of the Spirit of Jesus, and we do it as a new community. Let's pray. Father, it's awe-inspiring that you would even enact the gospel in human history. And what a strange thing it is that you have called us to reenact it to image it, to mirror it, to tell it over and over. What a strange thing it is that you have called a community of people to tell that story to the world. Would you give us grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that throughout this week and the rest of our lives? Amen.